Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is world-renowned theologian, Professor N.T. Wright. Tom Wright, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you, it's good to be back. Oh, Tom, it's wonderful to have you here. I was reminiscing this morning that we first met 36 years ago in, in Mon- Canada. In Montreal. In yeah, Montreal, yeah. and we've been friends ever since. <laughs> That's great. Now, let's just clarify your name. You <laughs> publish under Tom Wright, but you also publish under N.T. Wright. So tell us the difference. I was christened Nicholas Thomas Wright, but um, lots of men in my family are called Nicholas, so it was much more convenient to go by my second name, which then gets abbreviated to Tom and almost always has been. Uh, my English publishers, when they started publishing kind of popular level things, they said, NT looks far too formal, so let's call you Tom. The Americans prefer the formality, um, like C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot. And <laughs> yes. That's what they said to me. So I'm fine, OK. So the books then divide into NT and Tom, but despite uh, some rumours, it is all the same person, actually. It, yeah, it is the same person. <laughs> now, how would you describe uh, what it is that you do? <laughs> I try to soak myself in the Bible on a daily, regular basis, and I try to soak my in the Bibleness in an understanding of how the first century world, especially the Jewish first century world, actually worked, how people thought, what they wanted, what they were expecting. And I found over my, my whole adult lifetime that that has meant that things in the Bible have come to life for me and come up in three dimensions in all sorts of ways. And then the task is, as a pastor, as a teacher, etc., to try to translate that into 20th and now 21st century reality. For me as a person, but for me as a teacher as well. Um, but my commitment is to get to know the Bible itself as well as I possibly can within its context and always to be excited about the new things, the unexpected things, little and big things, which nobody had told me about before, but oh my goodness, there they are. And it's very exciting, goes on being so. Now, the the route to go down the um, academia, um, I, I understand it was you listened to John Wenham. Oh, well. And, and mm. something triggered off there. Yes, there were, I mean, I'd always, as I say, known I was called to ministry from a very early age. I I assumed that was normal. I assumed if God wanted to make somebody a a clergy person, um, he would tell them early on. But actually, I now know that that was comparatively rare. Um, But I didn't know that there was such a thing as academic theology, because why would you know growing up? Um, It wasn't my world at all. But when I was an undergraduate studying philosophy and ancient history, both of which I loved, um, I actually thought at one point, maybe I should be a philosopher because I was so enjoying doing the philosophy stuff. And then um, we had a a series of seminars in the Christian Union. Um, This must have been about 1970, I suppose. And John Wenham, who many people know through his grammar of New Testament Greek, but he was a fine gospel scholar as well, um, scholar of Matthew, Mark and Luke particularly. Um, he did some talks, in one of which he said, kind of a, as an aside at the end, that people who really love God and love Scripture and are determined to stay loyal to Scripture have spent far too long playing catch-up with liberal scholars saying, you can't believe this, you shouldn't believe that, Jesus never said the other, whatever. He said, and we've been writing footnotes and trying to correct them. He said, what we need is 
for people actually to get out on the front foot and make the running and have them playing catch up. And I remember sitting there, I know exactly where it was, just round the corner from where I now live, thinking, wow, now that's something to aim at. Little thinking what it would actually look like in practice. Um, but that really made me think, aha, okay. Looking back, that was a vocational moment. At the time, I just thought that was exciting. Yeah, it was like an epiphany yeah. that yeah, yeah, you yeah. should give yourself. Yes, to... yes, yes. Yeah. And so when I then studied um, theology after doing philosophy in ancient history, um, I, I was determined, okay, I'm actually going to get to know this book as well as I possibly can. And so I would spend hours and hours simply reading through and trying to get my head around the Greek and the Hebrew and so on. Um. Well, let's talk about it, Tom, <laughs> the Bible. OK, um, assuming nobody knows what it is, what is the Bible? It's a big book in which the people of God have said, this is our story. And as you read it, you discover that it can be your story as well. It's the story of God and the world, from start to finish, focused on the story of God and his chosen people, Israel, the family of Abraham, which itself becomes focused, shockingly, on the story of Israel's Messiah, who is Jesus of Nazareth. And as we know from the earlier stages of that story, particularly from the Psalms and the book of Isaiah, if Israel's Messiah really shows up and is validated as such, he is going to be the Lord of the world, through whom God's kingdom is going to come on earth as in heaven. And so the story takes you through to Jesus and this explosive moment where the power of evil is overcome and God's new creation is launched. And then the way that story is told says, come on, you must join in this project because there will come a time when God will sum up all things in heaven and earth um, in Jesus the Messiah. So from Genesis to Revelation, that's what it is. It's the story of God and creation, of God and Israel, of ultimately God and or God as Jesus, and then drawing us into that story to be part of God's new creation project. Tom, when they came to decide which of the books of the New Testament that they should put together, the people who wrote those books, wrote those letters, they didn't know that they would end up becoming the New Testament. No, in the same way that, you know, I don't know what my children are going to get up to in the next 30 or 40 years, I can guess. But it's very interesting that when Paul, who is the first, as far as we know, the first Christian writer of whom we have evidence, when he is writing to this or that church, he makes it quite clear that he has Jesus' authority behind him, that Jesus has called him to be an apostle, which is a witness to the resurrection, and an authoritative teacher. And he says that several times. Um, and when he is then writing to a church, he believes that he is, as it were, setting down a blueprint from God. For uh, Does that mean he's writing scripture? Well, he probably didn't think of it in exactly those terms, but he believes that God by his spirit is enabling him to articulate for this church what following Jesus is going to be like for them. And in the same way, think of uh, John's Gospel, and there's always a debate about when it's written, and actually there's a scholar in Cambridge who's now saying it's written quite early, possibly in the 60s or even earlier. Um, 
If somebody in that culture starts a book with in the beginning, en arche, en logos, he is evoking Genesis chapter one, in the beginning God. And he's telling the story of Jesus through the lens of remember that great creation story. Now, that's a huge act of chutzpah unless he actually believes that the story he's telling, he is equipped by God to tell it in such a way that it says, this is where all that was going. And I find it impossible to believe that whoever wrote the revelation of St. John with those last two great chapters of the New Jerusalem, chapters 21 and 22, I find it impossible to believe that that person wasn't aware that they were rounding something off because it's echoing Genesis 1 and 2, but in such a way as to say, this is where God always wanted the story to get to. And so from that point of view, it's not as though, oh, I'm writing scripture, so here we are. It's as though they're part of a living movement which involves, as it's fascinating, Humans from the beginning are given the capacity of speech, of words. Uh, Adam names the animals. And that is part of the human vocation, is to speak words which bring God's reality to birth in the world. And Jesus talks about that in the farewell discourses in John's Gospel, about speaking the truth. Um, when they then write these words, these words aren't just miscellaneous information. They are designed to bring God's fresh wise ordering to birth, so that people who read it are not just thinking interesting ideas, they're caught up in the quest for the new creation, which is the ultimate truth. Uh, when, when we read the Bible, uh, Tom, um, sometimes it can feel that it isn't always very clear. And uh, sometimes you think, Oh, it would have been better if it was clearer. <laughs> you know, Adam and Eve had two sons. Okay, where did they get their wives from? Uh, so Adam and Eve had two sons and the two sons, well, Cain and then Seth. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. There's all sorts of questions like that. Um, and the writer of Genesis doesn't seem to be bothered about that at all. It's, it's not a problem, but um, I don't think we gain anything by pretending there aren't odd questions like that. But most things that really matter in life make demands on us. Um, you know, we, we can't just be spoon-fed as though we're six-year-olds all the time. Um, we, 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 we need to wrestle with issues. That's, again, part of who we are. God wants us to be humans, not puppets. Yes. And we have to grow up and face the questions and say, well, actually, God doesn't seem to be bothered by this in the way that maybe we are because of various 19th century questions that came up. So, uh, yes, there, there will always be questions, but they challenge us to go further. Uh, and, and a lot of curiosity um, surfaces. You know, you take Abraham, for example, you know, a, a man of great faith, but he lied about his oh, wife. Uh, the, the Abraham story is very interesting like that because and, and you and I have talked about this before, I, I've been working on a, a children's Bible project where yes. you don't get many um, chances to say what has to be said. And it's easy to fall into the trap of making Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as great hero figures, great saints who never get anything wrong. And the answer is, read Genesis itself. There's one chapter of great faith and another chapter of great doubt, and then another chapter of great faith. And then, as you say, he tells lies. Yes. And Isaac does the same thing. And as for Jacob, he's one of the biggest 
cheats in the Middle East at the time, until he gets out-cheated by his uncle Laban. Um, and so uh, part of the glory of Genesis is to say that God works through very ordinary, indeed very disturbing characters. And that's one of the things I love about Genesis, by the way, is the way in which, as a book, Genesis has a reconciliation moment right at the end when Joseph forgives his brothers. Yes. And that's a way of taking all the folly and sin of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, let alone Joseph himself and his brothers, and actually saying, God can deal with that. And now let the story move forward. Okay, so we take Moses, um, goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which implies he wouldn't let them go because God hardened his heart. Yeah. And yet, if you go through each time it happens, it begins by Pharaoh simply saying no, and it gradually becomes that God hardens his heart. And that's one of those mysteries, and it's always a danger with Scripture. And, of course, this comes out in Romans 9, where Paul quotes a bit of that, and people have used that to fund various theories about predestination and so on, which isn't what Romans 9 is about, by the way. Um, but it's as though uh, we in the modern West particularly, have certain philosophical categories that everything, it's either the case that everything is determined or it's the case that everyone has free will. And that philosophical either or, that either we're just machines or we're just random atoms zipping around, we all actually know that's a false antithesis. Yes. Um, because though we do have, in a sense, free will, you know, I can choose to pick up this glass or not, and the determinist would say, ah, but you only did that because it was in your genes or whatever, it was going to happen. Um, but actually, we, I think we all do know in our bones that our freedom happens within a structure and that the structure nevertheless exists but that we are, we have freedom within it. And, and if we find that a paradox, so be it. So then, when you see wicked people doing wicked things, and in the last century in Europe and elsewhere, we've had plenty of examples of that. If you go back and look at the history, often there were moments of choice early on, and thereafter, they just seem, at every point, they choose what to us is the wrong thing. And I think the writer of Exodus is looking and saying, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's the only explanation. Of course, he should have let the people go, but, he was determined. Now, how does God work like that? It's not, he's not a puppet master pulling strings. God works with the grain of human being. Um, and sometimes the grain of human being is very unpleasant and awkward. And that's, that seems to be what happens. And it, it remains a mystery. But I don't think we, we, we can't solve that mystery easily by saying either God's pulling the strings or he's not. So moving to the New Testament, um, Tom, how would you explain what is the gospel? <laughs> the word gospel, which means good news, was in regular use in the first century to be an announcement of the good news that even though the last emperor has died, we have a new emperor. Um, Nero has come to the throne or Claudius is now emperor or whatever. And they would put that on inscriptions uh, the, or the good news of so-and-so's birth, the Greek euvangelion or in the plural euvangelia, good news, plural. We have an emperor or it's his birthday or whatever. Now, so when Mark writes his gospel, 
which we assume is perhaps somewhere in the 60s, and says that Jesus came into Galilee announcing the good news, many people in Mark's world would have thought, oh my goodness, this is an imperial announcement. A king is taking charge of the world. Oh, wow. And then when we say, hang on, Mark is also echoing the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there's a wonderful passage, the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, where in chapter 40 and chapter 52, there is a herald, an announcer, who is announcing this is the time for God to become king. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. And we know from passage after passage that in uh, the New Testament, they are echoing Isaiah, but also pointing to the Caesar message. And somewhere between the two, you have this sense, the news that God is at last taking charge of his world the way he always wanted to. And that then becomes good news for you, Peter and James and John, being called to a new life with Jesus. For you, a uh, woman with an issue of blood, because this good news means God is, this is what it looks like when God is taking charge. He's healing, he's evoking faith, he's promising new creation. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven. The good news is that's happening through Jesus and you can be a part of it and it'll turn you inside out, but you are summoned to have faith and to follow and be part of this new creation project. I know you've written about this a lot, Tom, but explain to us what was Jesus doing for us dying on the cross? In order to get to us, um, you need to have that whole story in mind because there's various different ways, and this was starting from quite early on, of twisting it so that it becomes either, um, isn't it terrible that we're trapped in these physical bodies and Jesus comes to rescue us from them and, and liberate our soul? That's basically Platonism, but many people have thought that's what Christianity was about and so on, or other people have said, well, Jesus came in order to start a revolutionary movement, so we've got to sharpen our swords and take on the empire or whatever. And it's neither of those things, but it's somewhere sort of triangulated in between them. What Jesus came to do for us was to defeat the power of evil and to launch new creation on earth as in heaven. That's very clear in the Gospels and in Paul and right the way through. But how it becomes for us is that within Jesus' launching of new creation, as we know throughout the New Testament, he sends his spirit, his own spirit, onto his followers so that new things can happen and a new community springs up, which is a community of forgiveness and healing and reconciliation. And we, by being invited to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God and to one another, can find ourselves transformed by the good news, working through the Spirit, making us into the sort of people who then are modeling what God's plan for the whole world is. One of my favorite bits actually in, in the Lesson of the Romans is um, Romans 15, where Paul quotes from Isaiah 11 about the root of Jesse rises to rule the nations and in him the nations will hope. But that is 
one verse from a whole passage which Paul has in mind, Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, which is all about the new creation with the wolf and the lamb lying down together and a little child shall lead them and so on. And Paul is saying, here is this world of new creation and you, by being a forgiven, reconciled person and living in a community of reconciliation, you can be part of a community which already demonstrates to the world what God's ultimate intention is going to be. So I, when I was a student, Tom, uh, in London in 1974, I was an agnostic. I met a Christian and um, he explained me uh, using John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, and then he showed me Revelation 3.20, Jesus stands at the door yeah. and if you open the door, let him in. And those two scriptures for me, uh, those were the tipping point yeah, for me. And I, I saw it that actually Jesus died for my sins yeah, 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 and yeah. I could open the door and let him yeah, in. Yeah. And it changed my life. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Hallelujah. And, uh, and those two texts and many others like them, but those two have often been focal points, of course. Yes. It's as though this great project of God has many doors, many ways in, and different people at different times and different personalities have found those ways in the ones for them. And other people, it might be something quite different. And, and the more one goes on in ministry, the more you realise God doesn't make us all alike, but the, the aim is, is always the same. So when I talk about Jesus in his death, defeating the power of evil. I'm drawing there on things that Jesus himself says in John 12, for instance, when he says, now is the ruler of this world going to be cast out? We don't normally think in those cosmic terms. You like to make it personal and intimate at once. But the, you get the personal and intimate within the larger picture because then, as John goes on with the story of the cross, you get, for instance, Pilate facing a choice, Jesus or Barabbas, and Barabbas is a, a, a murderer and a thief, etc., etc., and he goes free and Jesus dies. And the way John tells that story is a way of saying, with the defeat of evil, that happens because Jesus has taken your place. And those two go together. It's not either the defeat of evil or him taking your place. They interpret one another. Um, the words grace and works... Um, lots have been written about that. Um, could you explain to us the emphasis of the word grace and the emphasis of the word works? The reason the grace works thing has been such a puzzle in Western theology, it's not nearly such a puzzle, interestingly, in Eastern Orthodoxy. You grew up a Greek yes, Orthodox, you, I did. you would know that. Yes. <laughs> um, is, is because we have tended to conceive of the whole business of faith, God, Christianity, as how do we get to God and do we do it by our own efforts or does God somehow help us? And that's entirely wrong. The Bible is about God making a world where he wants to come and live with us. And the whole movement of the Bible is God coming to dwell with his people. That's why Genesis and Exodus, the whole movement is towards the construction of the tabernacle, despite the fact that Israel are, are quite a shower and they're rebellious and they've been idolatrous. And Moses has to plead with God, please don't abandon us. And God says, okay, fine, I'm coming, coming with you. And they build the tabernacle and God comes to dwell in the midst. And then you get 
the large-scale version of that, when Solomon builds the temple, God comes to dwell in the midst and says, if you hang in there and keep my commandments, I'm gonna be with you. And of course they don't and they mess it up. But then in the New Testament, it's all about the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the final scene, the dwelling of God is with humans when the New Jerusalem comes down. So if you tell the Bible story that way, instead of telling it as how do we climb upstairs to God, then yes. it's all of grace because that's what it's all about. It's about God saying, I'm going to come and live with you. Now, how are we going to clean up your house so that it'll be okay for me to come and live there? And if you tell the story that way, then everything we do is purely a response, purely a response to what God himself in his love is doing. The problem with talking about grace v works or whatever is that we often do it mechanistically as though it's a kind of zero-sum game, a machine. Either God is driving this way or we're driving that way. Love doesn't work like that. Um, human love doesn't work like that. God's love certainly doesn't work like that. And all that we do, all that we are, is a response to the love of the Creator. And the love which is ultimately shown actually in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And obviously I and you have written Absolutely. about that quite a lot. Uh, now, your, your love of the scriptures, Tom, <laughs> is inspiring. And for the majority of us and many of our viewers, how would you encourage us to read and study the Bible? Uh, we've got to do whole Bible reading. We, there are many schemes out there, but actually, if somebody started to read, say, Tolkien at a young age, they might well read a book this size in a week or two. It's not a big deal. People can do that. Young people can do that. If you read roughly three or four pages a day, you'll get through the Bible in a year. Yes. I wouldn't actually ultimately recommend doing it straight through like that. There is, there's some merit in it. There are different schemes where first you read Genesis, then you read Matthew or whatever. People can make their own schemes, but do it, get on with it. And particularly read whole books, set aside an hour or two when you're not too busy with anything else, switch off your mobile phone, and actually read through one and two Kings yes. or read through Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians at a run and let it wash over you. And the fact that you don't remember all the bits and pieces really doesn't matter. You know, if you go to a great symphony concert, you have an overture and a concerto and a symphony. At the end of the day, if somebody says to you, but I bet you can't whistle the second tune from the first movement or whatever, that's not the point. We have been taken on a journey. And so enjoy the Bible like that, but then be prepared to get into the, as people say, into the weeds of it. What's actually going on in this verse? Um, why does he say it like that? Pull some commentaries off the shelf. And for goodness sake, if you can learn Greek, I know you grew up speaking yes. Greek probably, so I hope you read the Bible in Greek, but, uh, uh, but th the more you do, the more it will open up. And so if you haven't got the Greek or the Hebrew, I would say, please, please get two or three or four different modern translations, because if you stick with one, you will be fooled into thinking that that is the automatic and only meaning, whereas there are many passages where the Greek doesn't go exactly into English. And so we need two or three different translations to help us think there's something more subtle going on. So read it big, but also read it small and get on with it. <laughs> Tom, it's always a joy talking to you. I always have a faith lift and always get inspired. Thank you for joining us on Thank Facing the Canon. Thank you very much. Canon. Great questions. 
I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Tom Wright. I always find him very inspiring. And can I encourage you to take a look at the books that he has written. He's actually written over 70 books. And this is one of my favorites, Broken Signposts. The subtitle is How Christianity Makes Sense of the World. Well, it certainly does. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. Many people have many questions about Jesus. Who was he? What did Jesus teach? Why was it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? What is it that Jesus can offer us today? How do we know that Jesus Christ is the truth? If you want to know what Jesus said, why he said it, and how we know he's the truth, pick up a copy of Jesus Christ, the truth. Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com.